Hello, everybody, and welcome to Get Lit Minute, your weekly podcast for all things poetic, poetry, and poets. My name is Samuel Curtis, and I'm the head of productions for Get Lit Words Ignite. Get Lit is a nonprofit organization that uses poetry and spoken word to increase literacy and empower young people. Get Lit, Get Literacy, Get Literate. In this podcast, we focus on the lives, history, and works of classic poets. All of the poets and poems featured on this podcast come from the Get Lit Anthology. We make this podcast in part so those that memorize, perform, and write original response pieces in schools to the poems featured in our anthology, they can get a better sense of who the people were that wrote these poems, and thereby hopefully find resonance with not only the words themselves, but also their lives as poets. We also hope you get that experience, whoever you may be out there listening. So keep on listening. This is your one-stop shop for all things poetic, poetry, history, and the power of the spoken word. And with that, let's dive into today's episode and discuss our featured poet for today, William Carlos Williams. William Carlos Williams was born the first of two sons of an English father and a Puerto Rican mother, and he grew up in Rutherford, New Jersey. He was a medical doctor, poet, novelist, essayist, and playwright. With Ezra Pound, Williams was a leading poet of the Imagist movement and often wrote of American subjects and themes. Though his career was initially overshadowed by other poets, he became an inspiration to the Beat Generation in the 1950s and 60s. He was known as an experimenter, an innovator, a revolutionary figure in American poetry. Yet in comparison to artists of his own time who sought a new environment for creativity as expatriates in Europe, William lived in a remarkably conventional life. He was a doctor for more than 40 years, serving the citizens of Rutherford, and he relied on his patients, the America around him, and his own imagination to create a distinctively American verse. Often domestic in his focus, his poetry was remarkable for its empathy, sympathy, its muscular and emotional identification with its subjects. His poetry was always characteristically honest. So let's talk a little bit about his upbringing. William's family provided him with a fertile background in art and literature. His father's mother, coincidentally, was named Emily Dickinson, who we're going to do a future episode on later. No relation, just same name. Um, and she was a lover of theater, and his own mother painted. William's father introduced his favorite author, Shakespeare, to his sons and read Dante and the Bible to them as well. But Williams had other interests in study. His enthusiastic pursuit of math and science at New York City's Horace Mann High School showed how little writing entered into any of his calculations. But later in high school, though, Williams took an interest in languages and felt for the first time the excitement of great books. He recalled his first poem, also written during that time, giving him a feeling of joy. And uh, I just ask you listeners out there, can you remember that first poem you read? That first poem you wrote? That first painting you looked at? That first painting that you painted? That first story you heard? That first story that you told? Um, when was the moment uh, you all felt that spark of joy and made that courageous decision that I'm going to become an artist. You know, this is what I want to spend my life doing. Would love to hear in the comment section um, or in the reviews. Yeah, when was that moment that you really found that spark, that burst of joy? 
So, aside from an emerging writing consciousness, William's early life was sweet and sour. He himself wrote that terror dominated my youth, not fear. Part of his terror came from the rigid idealism and moral perfectionism his parents tried to instill in him. William's letters written while a student at the University of Pennsylvania to his mother exemplify some of the expectations he carried. And he wrote, I never did and never will do a premeditated bad deed in my life. He wrote this in 1904. Also, I have never had and never will have anything but the purest and highest and best thoughts about you and Papa. It was a largely parental influence that sent him directly from high school to Pennsylvania in the first place to study medicine. But Williams used his college experiences as a means to creativity, instead of, as his parents might have wished, as a means to success. Yeah, so there's this thought, you know, um, that I'm interested to see what you listeners out there think of, yeah, that experience, you know, that juxtaposition, that conflict, sometimes that incredible amount of support that we have from our parents, um, how it influences the decisions we make, the paths we take in our lives. You can tell that this was an important relationship in his life that influenced his level of thinking. The conflict Williams felt between his parents' hopes for their son's success in medicine and his own less conventional impulses is mirrored in his poetic heroes of the time, John Keats and Walt Whitman both of who we've done episodes on. If you go back, you can listen to, we've done one on John Keats and Walt Whitman. Keats traditionally rhymed and metered verse impressed William Carlos Williams tremendously. He would say, Keats was my God. And William's first major poetic work was a model of Keats and Dimion, which is an incredible poem. You should read, check it out online or at a bookstore. And in contrast, Whitman's free verse offered an impulse toward freedom and release of the self. Williams explained how he came to associate Whitman with this impulse toward freedom when he said, I reserve my Whitmanesque thoughts as sort of confessional to clear my head and heart from obsessions. Yet, by his first year at Pennsylvania, Williams had found a considerably more vivid mentor than Whitman and a friend, Ezra Pound. Williams' friendship with Pound marked a watershed in the young poet's life. He later insisted, before meeting Pound is like B.C. in A.D., right, uh, before Christ, or Anno Domini, Anno Domini, I think that's how you say it. Under Pound's influence, Williams was soon ready to close the door on the studied elegance of Keats, on one hand, and the raw vigor of Whitman on the other. And this was all a reaction against the rigid and ordered poetry of the time that led Williams to join Pound and others as the core of what would become known as the Imagist movement. And there were other revolutionary moments that had begun in painting with Cezanne, you have music with Stravinsky and fiction with Gertrude Stein, but poetry was still bogged down at the time by the inversions and redundancies imposed by this effort to fill out a standard form. You know, poetry wasn't being innovated as much as these other art forms. And this is kind of a, an interesting chapter that I really have always been so fascinated, which we're about to describe, is, yeah, that William Carlos, he was a doctor. 
really, whenever I think of William Carlos Williams, I think of him taking care of these patients. You know, he was an at-home doctor, writing these little poems on the back of his little medical notes. That's, to me, just so, just can't say enough. I I think that's uh, interesting and poetic in its own way. So beginning with his internship in the Hell's Kitchen area of New York City and throughout his 40 years of private practice in Rutherford, Williams heard the inarticulate poems of his patients. As a doctor, his medical badge, as he called it, permitted him to follow the poor, defeated body into those gulfs and grottos, to be present at deaths and births, at the tormented battles between daughter and diabolical mother. From these moments poetry developed. It is fluttered before me for a moment, a phrase which I quickly write down on anything at hand, any piece of paper I can grab. And some of his poems were born on prescription blanks, others typed in a few spare minutes between patient visits. William's work, however, did more than fuel his poetry. It allowed him to write what he chose, free from any kind of financial or political pressure. From the beginning, he understood the trade-offs. He would have less time to write, and he would need more physical stamina than people with only one occupation. But he was willing to live the kind of rushed existence that would be necessary crowding two full lifetimes into one, learning from the first, then understanding through the second. There's little doubt that he succeeded in both. Uh, Richard Eldman and Robert O'Claire called him the most important literary doctor since Chekhov. You know, I feel like this topic keeps on coming up. It's a crazy time to be in the workforce, to have a profession, to have an occupation, you know? I feel like we all have creative artistic pursuits and it's always that trade-off right of do i take the life of the artist or do i take the life of you know the nine to five cubicle um and even though i think either of those like specifically exist i feel like the line between the creative professional and the artist is is becoming vaguer and vaguer with each passing year to me it has always been inspiring to think of one of the most noted poets of the past hundred years, his full-time job was a doctor, you know? And who would think that a doctor could be a poet? So, you know, you never know where artistry is gonna spur from. And you don't have to necessarily dedicate your full life to just poetry or to filmmaking or to painting or to music. Um, And also too, if you are having a profession, you know, there can be time for you to pursue your art. I think what is so interesting and noted about in William Carlos Williams was like he really was a full-time doctor, but he was really like a full-time literary figure at the same time. Like he really spent as much time on both of those crafts. And there's just a lot to take away from that. I remember the first time reading William's biography on a plane. And I think that is just something to take away from his whole lived experience of being a doctor. William's deep sense of humanity pervaded both his work in medicine and his writings. He loved being a doctor, making house calls, and talking to people. Webster Scott defined Williams as an immensely complicated man, energetic, compassionate, socially conscious, depressive, urbane, provincial, tough, fastidious, capricious, independent, dedicated, completely responsive. He was the complete human being, and all of the qualities of his personality were fused in his writings. 
Yeah, what an incredible uh, way to describe someone. What praise. And as Randall Jarrell pointed out, it is precisely in his written work where Williams demonstrates that he feels, not just says, that the differences between men and women are less important than their similarities, that he and you and I together are the little men, the little women, the little people. Corresponding with Williams' attraction to the locale was his lifelong quest to have poetry mirror the speech of the American people. Williams had no interest, he said, in the speech of the English country people, which would have something artificial about it. Instead, he sought a language modified by our environment, the American environment. He thought of himself as a local poet who possessed neither the high culture nor the old world manners of a T.S. Eliot or his friend Ezra Pound. He sought to express his democracy through his way of speaking. His point was to speak on an equal level with the reader and to use the language and thought materials of America in expressing his point of view. This is another topic that's come up in our you know, first seven or eight episodes is this style of writing. You know, What is the style that you as a poet want to convey? I think as you can hear here in this description, yeah, Williams was really trying to find a way to speak directly in a way that sounded like how one would speak to each other in a local community. He wanted to write poetry that really spoke the language of what he saw as his people, the American people. Obviously, what America, especially nowadays, means a lot of different things to different people. Um, and there's so many diverse and niche communities but yeah, there's something really interesting, you know, this desire he had to find his voice, his style, his ability to connect with his reader. What is the way that you focus on when you're developing your voice? What is it that you think will allow you to connect to your reader? Despite his failing health, Williams lived as productively as possible throughout his later years. He traveled, gave lectures, and entertained writers in the same home that had been visited by members of the Imagist movement more than 40 years earlier. Williams continued to write poetry, as well as essays and short stories. And he continued to cooperate with the writers interested in his work. He put together this publication of selected letters in a series of discussions, which would become the autobiography of his works, which was entitled, I Wanted to Write a Poem. Through a partially paralyzing stroke in 1958 and a 1959 cancer operation, however, that stole a lot of his remaining energy and capabilities. And being no longer able to read, by the end of the decade, he depended on his wife to read to him, often as long as four hours a day. With continued failing health further slowing him down, on March 4th, 1963, William Carlos Williams died in his sleep. So we're going to close out this episode today with The Red Wheelbarrow. This poem was originally published without a title and was designated in Roman numerals XXII22 uh, as the 22nd work in William's 1923 book, Spring and All, which was a hybrid collection which incorporated alternating sections of free verse poetry and prose. This poem, The Red Wheelbarrow, it is one of William's most frequently anthologized poems 
and is considered a prime example of early 20th century imagism. The Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. Since that was such a short one, I'm going to read it again. I just love this poem. This is one of my all-time favorite poems. I don't know. I just love it. Just Yeah, it's that imagery, that simplicity. So I'm just going to read it one more time. The Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. So that's another episode of Get Lit Minute. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Please make sure to rate, uh, review, comment, like, subscribe, do all the social media things, share this with your friends, um, any teachers you know, any students, anyone who's interested in poetry. Again, Get Lit Minute is your one-stop shop for all things poetic, poetry, and poets, and we're so glad you tuned in to listen today. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you back next week.